This is the Garbage Pod. One pod, one load of garbage. 29 and 28. I've in custody. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is the news. All Moscow is waiting to give a hero's welcome to the world's first spaceman, Major Gagarin of the Soviet Air Force. Major Gagarin was sent up in his four-and-a-half-ton spaceship from somewhere in the Soviet Union, soon after seven o'clock this morning, our time. And about 148 minutes later, he was brought down again after his 25,000-mile-an-hour flight around the Earth at heights ranging between 105 and 181 miles. As he looked down on the Earth from the loneliness of space, he streaked across Asia, Africa and South America, constantly checking his instruments and controlling the pitch and roll of the ship by firing small correcting rockets. The director of the National Space Agency, Mr James Webb, called the flight a splendid achievement, adding that he hoped the Russians would make available to scientists the information they gained from the experiment. The British Interplanetary Society's Vice President, Mr Kenneth Gatlin, had this to say. The world enters an entirely new era, which can enrich beyond measure our understanding of the universe. Hello everybody and welcome to the Garbage Pod for the 12th of April 2013. As you probably guessed, it's that time of year when the space community get together and raise a glass to the man who made first orbits. On the 12th of April 1961, Yuri Gagarin became the first human to orbit the Earth and change the world as we know it. In this episode, we join the global celebration that is Yuri's Night. There will be music and hopefully along the way there will be a few surprises. We'll also be discussing one of the unsung heroes of the Soviet space program, without whom Yuri's Night would not exist. Joining me on board the Garbage Pod tonight is Garbage Pod regular Adri Ballhawk Mallows. How goes it fella? Yeah, very good, thank you very much. Hello to everyone out there in in the Pottersphere land. And returning after a little absence is John Witz. Welcome back, John. Nice to be back. How are you both? Fine. Very good, sir. Yourself? Good. Yeah, can't complain. Are you both ready to blast off into the Pottersphere? Yes. I'm certainly okay. ready to blast off. <laughs> <laughs> Lay off the curry. <laughs> well, it is Friday, come on. True. As a brave man once said, Payakali. Let's go. Hello, I'm NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden and I'm here with Deputy Administrator Lori Garver. Each year on April 12th, we commemorate two milestones of spaceflight. The launch of Yuri Gagarin as the first human in space in 1961 and the beginning in 1981 of a whole new transportation system, the Space Shuttle, on which I've proudly flown. During this year's Yuri's Night celebrations, all of you are joining space friends across the world at 100 parties in 36 countries on six continents. That's really something. We hope you have fun tonight while celebrating these great achievements in human history. Lori, how old were you when Yuri Gagarin took his historic flight? Charlie, I think you know that Yuri's historic launch happened at about Lori launch minus one. That is, I didn't join the world until a month after Yuri sailed into space. My mother can vouch. But I arrived at an auspicious time. When STS-1 launched, I was in college and already thinking about how my career could involve space. I hate to admit it, but 
I was a teenager when Gagarin flew. But it wasn't long before I started thinking about what it might be like to go into space too. A lot of us in the 1960s were inspired by the space pioneers, and a whole new generation was inspired by John Young and Bob Crippen when they made their incredible flight 20 years later. Like Yuri, they were the first aboard an amazing vehicle that humans had never flown on before. The bravery of our space pioneers is amazing and it continues to inspire. I hope many of you who are celebrating tonight and are just starting out on careers or beginning to think about what you want to do will think about pursuing the many opportunities that have come about thanks to Yuri Gagarin, John Young, Bob Crippen, and the many astronauts and cosmonauts who have blazed that leadership path. There are many future opportunities, not only for astronauts, but for engineers and scientists and students. I don't know about you, but I still plan to go to space myself. Lori's right. Yuri's night is especially for the next generation, the forward-thinking people who are dreaming of our future in space. Together, we'll make it happen. Have a great night. As Charlie Bolden mentioned in that clip, the 12th of April was also the launch date of STS-1, the first flight of the Space Shuttle Columbia, exactly 20 years after Yuri's voyage into the unknown. However, that was purely by fate because the Columbia was supposed to launch on the 10th of April, but it was scrubbed due to a computer failure. Yeah, part of me wonder if it, if it was a computer failure, if there's a little bit of a conspiracy in there, Cold War style, just for America to steal some of Russia's thunder on the 12th of April. It's possible. <laughs> there's also another celebration that takes place tonight. Does anybody know what that is? No. John? <laughs> no, can't think of anything. You can't think of anything. It's your birthday, John. Oh, poor for my birthday. It's your birthday. <laughs> Ta -da! Anyway. Um, Happy birthday, John. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think both of you knew nothing of Yuri's Night until I mentioned it to you. Am I right in thinking that? Totally. Yes, indeed. And um, I think the first that you actually heard of uh, Yuri's Night, John, was when I said to you, did you want to come to a Yuri's Night event? That's true, in Hitchin. That's about right. two years ago, I think, wasn't it? Yep, for the 50th anniversary. That's uh, it. Where we, we met uh, Terry Ransom. We um, did. And unfortunately, we, we were going to hook up with Terry tonight, but he couldn't make it. But we hope to um, hook up with him again later on this year. Um, there should be some quite interesting stuff coming your way. I thought how, what we'd start off with here is by playing a piece of audio from the founders of Yuri's Night, George and Loretta Whitesides and Ryan Kubrick, talking about why they decided to create Yuri's Night. George Whitesides. And I'm Loretta Whitesides. In 2001, when we created Yuri's Night, our goal was to start an, an event that would be celebrated 10,000 years in the future. We wanted to bring together artists and engineers, scientists and musicians uh, to come and experience the wonder of outer space. It inspires me now to imagine a child in a hundred years who's born away from planet Earth, having Yuri's Night as a chance to connect back with the home planet. So thanks to everyone for being a part of this year's global celebration and thanks for being part of the global community of people working to make a better future for humanity on this planet and others. 
Поехали! Hello, I'm Ryan Kobrick, the Executive Director of Yuri's Night, and I celebrate Yuri's Night because I love bringing people together to celebrate, and I love space flight. Space is really important, our future is in the cosmos, and in order for people to really understand where we're going in the future, they need to understand that, understand our history, our present, and then of course the future. So uh, I encourage everyone to celebrate Yuri's Night and rock the planet. The Garbage Pod. Your input is our output. So, what do we know about Yuri Gagarin? He was Russian. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, he died when he was 34 years old. He was a major in the army. Uh, he was in the Air Force, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. Same diff, but yeah. <laughs> he was in space for just over an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. Listen to this. Yuri Alexievich Gagarin was born on the 9th of March 1934 in the village of Klashino, some 161 kilometers west of Moscow, situated near the town of Gaksk, now named Gagarin in his honor. His father was a farmer and his mother a dairymaid. He started school at Gaksk, but his studies were interrupted by the 1941 Nazi invasion of Russia. The Gagarin house was occupied and the family had to live in a dugout. When he was 15, he became an apprentice foundryman in an agricultural machinery plant in Lebertsky, just outside Moscow. In 1951, he transferred to the Saratov Industrial Technical School. He graduated with honours as a foundryman technician in 1955. In that same year, he joined the Saratov Flying Club and earned his wings. He decided not to take up his career as a foundryman, but rather to become a pilot. He spent the summer learning to fly Yak-18s before enrolling as a cadet at the Orenburg Pilot Training School. He graduated from there two years later. He immediately joined the Soviet Air Force as a fighter pilot. In 1957, he was promoted to lieutenant. In October 1959, Gagarin and 19 other pilots from the Soviet Air Force were selected for cosmonaut training at a purpose-built site named Star City in Moscow. Gagarin began his cosmonaut training in January 1960. Two cosmonauts were shortlisted for the first flight, Gagarin and the other was German Titov. Two days before the launch, Gagarin was chosen over Titov because Titov had a bit of an attitude problem. Titov had to wait, but he did become the second person to orbit the Earth when on August 6, 1961, he flew aboard Vostok 2, orbiting the Earth 17 times. Titov, at the age of 25, remains the youngest person ever to fly in space and the first person to ever sleep in space and also to get space sickness. But it was Gagarin who got the first orbit. Gagarin did not fly in space again. Soviet authorities, keen to protect their hero, banned him from further space flights. Grounded from space, he worked for the Soviet space program and trained other cosmonauts at Star City. He remained a member of the Soviet Air Force and achieved the rank of Colonel in 1963. In 1965, he was permitted to re-enter the cosmonaut selection pool and was chosen as a backup pilot for the first Soyuz flight. 
a flight which ended in a fatal crash. Although he had been protected against the risks of spaceflight, Gagarin was killed aged just 34 when on the 27th of March 1968 his MiG plane crashed during a training flight. He was survived by his wife Valentina and his two daughters Elena and Galina. His ashes were buried in the walls of the Kremlin on Red Square in Moscow. Gagarin was a man of few words, but when he did speak, his words were prolific. Here is one of his lesser known speeches, but it is very relevant today. When I orbited the Earth, I saw for the first time how beautiful our planet is. Mankind, let us preserve and increase this beauty and not destroy it. It's quite sad that he, he died quite young and there's a lot of conspiracy theories behind his death. Some say that his plane may have been tampered with. But, yeah, these things happen. Yeah, they do, unfortunately, don't they? I mean, anything could happen for even the best of pilots to crash. Mm, very much so. As I mentioned at the top of the show, there's another man without whom Yuri's Night would not exist. For years, the man widely regarded as the father of the Soviet space program answered only to the title Chief Designer. His identity closely guarded by the state, in fear that he may be assassinated. Sergei Korolev spent an illustrious career unknown to both his fellow countrymen and to the outside world. For Korolev, who had launched the first satellite and the first man into space, recognition was to come only after his death. As an engineering graduate in Moscow during the 1930s, he co-founded an amateur rocket society with colleague Frederick Zander, who, like Korolev, was inspired by ideas of space travel. Their experiments with liquid-fueled rockets soon caught the eye of the military. After Zander's sudden death on Typhus, Korolev was persuaded to merge his rocket group with another in Leningrad, forming a new organisation under military leadership. Korolev was forced to redirect his research towards the development of long-range missiles. During Soviet President Joseph Stalin's Great Purge, Korolev was denounced by other members of his organisation. He was arrested on trumped-up charges of sabotaging work for defence installations and membership of anti-Soviet groups. He was sent to one of the most feared parts of the Kulag network of labour camps, the Kolymar region of eastern Siberia. Thousands of prisoners died each month in freezing gold mine camps. Korolev was worn down by 12-hour days of back-breaking work, a poor diet, the harsh climate and abuse at the hands of guards and genuine criminals. He was later transferred to a special engineering design office for prisoners, a move which marked the rebirth of his career. By this time, he had lost all of his teeth to scurvy and was given potato juice to drink in an effort to nurse him back to health. Freed in 1946, Korolev spent his first night at home telling the adult members of his family about the ordeal. His daughter, Natalia, told a Russian newspaper 
that he finished the night by saying, Never ask me about that again. I want to forget it all, just like a horrible dream. At the end of World War II, a scramble began to recover the secrets of Nazi Germany's V-2 rockets. Stalin made missile development a priority for the Soviet Union and a new facility was established outside Moscow for the purpose. Korolev was tasked with exploiting the V-2 technology to develop long-range missiles. Korolev's efforts led to the R-7, a two-stage rocket capable of carrying nuclear warheads. It was the world's first intercontinental ballistic missile. But Korolev did not lose his passion for spaceflight. In 1952, a scientific organisation called for artificial satellites to be launched during International Geophysical Year, designated to begin in 1957. Korolev saw this chance and campaigned for a Soviet satellite launch. In 1956, the government approached Korolev's proposal after hearing of US plans to launch their own satellite. Built in a hurry to beat the US into space, Sputnik 1 blasted off atop a modified R-7 missile in October 1957. The launch of the world's first artificial satellite by the Soviet Union sent shockwaves around the world. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev demanded more spectacular launches from Korolev's team. Sputnik 1 was followed by the first animal in space, the first man in space, the first woman in space, the first multi-person mission, and the first ever spacewalk. By this time, Korolev commanded enormous authority, yet despite the grand title of chief designer, he was only part of a large space and weapons industry. When Sweden's Nobel Committee decided to award their prize to the chief designer, they asked to know his name. Premier Khrushchev told them the entire Soviet people deserved the award. The Soviets eventually tried to compete with the US in the race to the moon. Korolev began work on an immense rocket called the N-1, intended to carry cosmonauts on their lunar venture, but the chief designer died before he could see his plan to fruition. After the N-1 failed several times in tests, and following NASA's successful touchdown on the moon's sea of tranquility, the Soviet lunar program was quietly cancelled. Korolev had been suffering from health problems for years, some stemming back from his time in the Gulag. On the 14th of January 1966, during surgery on an intestinal tumour, because his jaw had been repeatedly broken by interrogators during his time in the Gulag, the tubes needed to keep his life support systems operational would not stay in place. He died on the operating table. A few days after Korolev had passed away, his accomplishments were revealed to the world when his obituary was published in the pages of the official newspaper Pravda. Today, Korolev has a town named after him in Russia, craters on the moon and Mars and an asteroid also bear his name. Korolev's place in history as one of the fathers of space exploration has at last been recognised. Now, I've discovered something that ties rather well with um, Sergei Korolev. Did you know that he has a connection to William Shakespeare? Is it something to do with Stratford? Yes. Um, Well, I didn't know anything about it until my recent trip to Stratford-upon-Avon. We paid a visit to the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, and whilst we were there, we visited the bookshop where I saw a book. 
Now, <laughs> I know you're going to say what's unusual about that. Well, this uh, book stood out like a sore thumb because alongside uh, the rows of every Shakespeare book you can imagine, there was a book with a spaceman on the cover. Now, this intrigued me because, as far as I know, Shakespeare had not predicted space travel in any of his works. <laughs> I took the book from the bookshelf, and on closer inspection, I realised that the spaceman was in fact Yuri Gagarin, and the book was entitled Little Eagles. Little Eagles are what Sergei Korolev used to call his elite group of test pilots selected for the space programme. And the book is based around a play created by the Royal Shakespeare Company in 2011 to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Yuri's historic flight. Here's playwright Rona Munro to tell you a little bit more about Little Eagles. I'm Rona Munro and I wrote Little Eagles. I was asked by the RSC, they were looking for contemporary history plays. The first idea that came into my head was something to do with the space race. It was an actual part of my own life. This point of human history that we'd all thought was going to be our future, we all thought we were going to be living in the stars and that space was where we were all going, had to become history. And it's something that, you know, nobody did anymore and no one even could do anymore. My idea was to write about the Apollo moon missions because that's what I was really aware of. But then at some point in that process I thought, I should just check up on what the um, Soviets were up to. And at that point I discovered this whole other slew of stories that were just as incredible and just as amazing. But I didn't know them, and it's partly, I think, because at the time nobody knew because the Iron Curtain was up. And then when the Iron Curtain came down, space was already history, so nobody cared. So that was kind of where all my focus went. Um, and in fact, Little Eagles is the story of the Soviet um, push into space. The reason why it was a compelling story is because it was supposed to be our future, and it's become our history. This is such a huge dream and it's become a dream that no one can afford. But if you look at the amount of resources that both uh, America and the Soviet Union threw at that dream, and what they achieved, you think if we had a dream that big, if our dream was, for instance, you know, to abolish world hunger or to cure cancer, whatever, if we chucked that kind of energy at it, clearly we could do it because it was impossible to go into space. But what you needed was a dream that was large enough to mobilise two huge nations to make it possible, and it, it became possible. Even with all the kind of Cold War connotations, all the military applications that were attached to the space programme, and all the kind of propaganda and bluster that was attached to it, and all the human cost of it, even set against all that, you just go, a dream that big is inspirational, and why aren't we dreaming that big? What happened to our dreams in my lifetime, really? The protagonist or the, or the character that the play is really built around is this guy called Karelyov who was the designer of the Soviet space program. It's this extraordinary thing where you have one guy whose dream it is and who has masterminded the, the whole effort. Building a play around real historical people is such a double-edged sword when you're actually talking about recent history and people, some of whom are still alive, 
you have to kind of deal with this terrible kind of guilt and terror that you're getting it horribly wrong. I had to kind of take the Shakespearean decision if at the end of the day this has to be a dramatic character that works as a dramatic character and trust the audiences are intelligent enough to enjoy the drama and appreciate where the drama might be overlaid on a much more complicated reality. Well, it's interesting, I was, um, we, for writer and rehearsals of piece and new work, I think the process is, for me, is always the same, which is because, in a sense, no one's tried these lines before. I think the rehearsal process is about testing them. With something like Shakespeare, you know it works. Loads and loads of people have made it work. It's been around for hundreds of years, and these are the lines, are the lines for a reason, and they work. So therefore, you just work out how to make them work for you. With a piece of new writing, one's job as a writer in rehearsal is to be there to explain how the line should work, could work, or what you were hoping for, what your intention was, so that people can attempt that. And then if it doesn't work, you know you need to change the line. The whole process of seeing stuff come off the page and actors kind of take possession of it is the best bit of the process for me. It's an epic historical drama. It's a tragedy. It's a big play. With this cast and with this degree of sort of energy and commitment, I think it's going to be a big, meaty, satisfying night out. It is amazing that you think that all of the money and time and effort and passion that went into space travel, you just think it's a great example, as you said, as to what humanity can achieve if it puts its minds together. Well, you've only got to look at technology in general. You look at mobile phones, a new one, a better, uh, upgraded phone every six months or so. Yeah. Uh, yet some medical changes take years. Now, if they put as much time and effort as they do into mobile phones and stuff, into you know the medical industry, we might have cures for things uh, a it's bit quicker. It's a money quicker. thing as well, though. Yeah, it's a money thing as well, though, isn't it? Because obviously a lot of the medical things um, fall on governments, etc., to to spend money on, whereas obviously mobile phone companies are all private. So it's kind of, we need to try and find a way to get the private sector to invest in, in public health. Yeah. Yeah, that is the big, the big problem. Crichton, what are you doing, man? Oh, sir, I'm listening to The Garbage Pod. It's a podcast I found in the podosphere. I think it's time we had a little bit of music. On solid fuel wires, turn the key and light. Fire. We're leaving Earth today. This rocket's burning bright. We'll soon be out of sight and orbiting in space. Push back in my seat. Look out my window. There goes home That ball of shiny blue Houses everybody Anybody ever knew So sing your song I'm listening Out where stars are listening I can hear your voices Bouncing off the moon you could see 
Racing past at half a thousand tons, ninety minutes moon to sun. A bullet can't go half this fast. Floating from my seat, look out my window. There goes home. That brilliant ball of blue is where I'm from and also where I'm going to. So sing your song. I'm listening. Out where stars are glistening, I can hear your voices bouncing off the moon. If you could see our nation. From the international space station, you know why I wanna get back soon. All black and white just fades to gray. Where the sun rises sixteen times a day. You can't make our borders from a Push back in my seat. Look out my window. Here it comes home. What once was fueled by fear now has fifty nations orbiting together here. So sing your song. I'm listening. Out where stars are glistening, I can hear your voices bouncing off the moon. If you could see our nation from the International Space Station, you know why I want to get back soon. You know why I want to get back soon. Well, what did you think of that? Very good. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good tune, that. That is a song called ISS, Is Somebody Singing? Um, and that was performed by the current International Space Station commander, Chris Hadfield, from the Canadian Space Agency, singing a duet with Ed Robertson from the Canadian rock band Bare Naked Ladies. Wow, really? Um, and Commander Hadfield was actually on the space station when they actually performed it, so it was a duet from space and from Earth. Wow, that's what I call a long-distance concert. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's got to be the first time ever, surely. No. <laughs> really? Um, one was done for the uh, 50th anniversary of uh, Yuri's Night. Um, Katie Coleman uh, did a duet with Ian, what's his name? Ian Anderson from Jeffro Toll. They both play flute. And oh, right. um, they did a kind of, you know, like the dueling banjos type thing? Yeah, that's they, one of my favourite tracks ever. They kind of did a similar thing, but with flutes. Dueling flutes? Kind of. <laughs> Laura LaRue here. Whenever I'm in the potosphere, there's only one place to be. The Garbage Pod. Over the last couple of weeks, I've been asking the space community to record a little message for the show. Answering one question. What does Yuri's Night mean to them? And here is the first message that came in. Hey Mark, uh, welcome to NASA Edge. Yeah, it's good to be on the garbage pot. Uh, or the rubbish show. <laughs> <laughs> hey, trying to keep it relevant, that's yeah, absolutely. good. Absolutely. Yeah. Hey, I know you're on the other side of the pond there, Mark, but uh, you know we were actually in England uh, a couple times last year and wondering why you guys didn't, you know, you didn't invite us on your show. Yeah, we could have at least done a phoner. Uh, Blair and Chris won the BBC one morning. That's right. We were on uh, Manchester uh, BBC. If we come back, we need to do tea, right? Is that, is that appropriate? It's an afternoon, right? A little tea time? A little, oh. p- little pims? Yeah, no, why not? Good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, all right. Well, now, listen, what we want to do for Mark is to answer this uh, very serious question about uh, what does Yuri's Night mean to you? And that would be, in this case, each of us. I have three words that describes Yuri's Night. Shuttle Bay Confessions. Go to the NASA Edge (laughs) portal on iTunes and, and download our Yuri's Night show. Uh, but when I think of Yuri's Night, I don't even think of it as being a serious, when you say a serious question, I just think of Yuri's Night as being a party. Well, it is kind of a party because you're celebrating this incredible event that really, I guess for many uh, of us who are interested in space, it really started it all in terms of modern space flight. So, I mean, you know, obviously you have to be excited about that. I mean, who is Yuri, by the way? Uh, first uh, astronaut, or well, cosmonaut? Cosmonaut, Would you call astronaut. Because co- he really, did he fall under the cosmonaut uh, moniker? I would think so. Yeah, okay. But I'm sure Mark will correct us on the on the live, on his live show. Okay, well, one of us should say cosmonaut, the other should say astronaut. That way where our bases are covered. Cosmonaut, right? astronaut. Okay. One, two, three. Cosmonaut. Astronaut. Cosmonaut, yeah. <laughs> or a taikonaut, but no, he wasn't, he wasn't over. Oh, right. yeah, well, yeah. they had. Yeah. Well, anyway, that, it's, it's true. It's, it's a big party and it's a big event because uh, you're celebrating this significant accomplishment. Well, the thing is, we covered the Yuri's Night at NASA Ames a few years back, and, and that was an eye-opener I like, could not believe. Uh, you just got to watch our show. And that was my first experience with um, uh, Yuri's Night, and I was in awe at what the, uh, the folks at Ames put on for their Yuri's Night, and it was just mind-blowing. It was yeah. over the top, wasn't it? It was yeah. a little over the In top. In fact, I don't think they were invited to do it again after that. <laughs> I noticed we weren't invited. <laughs> no, 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 no. We enjoyed it too much. Yeah, But, you know, it, actually, in all seriousness, the celebrations have continued every year. And a lot of the other centers have gotten involved and done different things. But uh, I can't, I'm with Chris. I can't help but think back to Shuttle Bay Confessions, yeah. one of the funner uh, segments we did. 
uh, for funner. I don't know if that's the appropriate no, word. That's not maybe more fun. maybe on the yeah. pun. I don't know, but uh, no, no, more fun. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, one of the more fun segments. But I have to say that was um, quite an experience. Yes, asking questions uh, to the. Yuri, Yuri Knight participants. Yes. Yeah. And I do like that it has an international flair yes. as well. That's that's really cool because it's not yeah. just a, you know our space program or the Apollo program or the shuttle program or anything like that or the future SLS program. It, it's kind of timeless in its origin, and, and I think that's cool. Well, I'm absolutely looking forward to uh, Yuri's night this year. I'm going to go over to the Virginia Air and Space Center in Hampton, Virginia, to uh, uh, celebrate with everybody here in our area, and I, I can't wait. Well, very good. So everyone who's uh, listening to the Garbage Pod uh, live, hey, Yuri's night, one of a kind, great party, great atmosphere, learn about space, learn about everything, and... Download our Yuri's Night show. Absolutely. And one thing to remember for all the participants out there, if you're lucky enough to pull off what Yuri did, don't drink in orbit. (laughs) I want to remind people celebrating, be safe out there. Don't drink in orbit the planet. You had uh, Blair, Chris, and Franklin from NASA Edge. That was nice of them to actually send that message in, wasn't it? Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Um, It's great to get. Um, correspondence from people like that, especially as uh, as much into the trade, shall we say, as, as they are. So thank, thank, thanks very much for the message, guys. And um, if you're ever over here, we, I'm sure we'd love to hook up for some pims or afternoon tea, definitely. <laughs> well, you see, afternoon tea is not necessarily tea, is it? It's it's sandwiches and cakes. Yeah. Oh, I do like a bit of cake <laughs> <laughs> and scones. Oh, yeah, scones, cream, and, and jam. Yep, oh, that that yep, reminds yep, me of yep, tea yep. at cricket, that does. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's confusing sport, isn't it? Cricket. What, cricket? Yeah. It's the only game that I know that you, you go out to come in and you go in when you're out. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can see why that would be a little bit confusing. <laughs> And it's you, worked on me. And, and you can play it for, for days on end and it can still be a draw. <laughs> yeah, that's it, the old five-day draws. <laughs> Blair was going on about not drinking in orbit. <laughs> now, uh, what that's about is somebody sneaked in a bottle of vodka to Vostok 1 and when uh, Yuri was getting a little bit nervous, he actually cracked the bottle open <laughs> and started drinking and um, all of a sudden through the headphones uh, of the guys at Mission Control they could hear Yuri Gagarin singing rude songs (laughs) brilliant (laughs) so I take it you had the whole bottle then Uh, yeah (laughs) yeah the other thing I said on there about um, was he an astronaut was he a cosmonaut well um, a lot of people will say cosmonauts weren't actually invented at that time but every piece of documentation that I can find refers to him as a cosmonaut. So I'm going to say cosmonaut. The garbage pod. Your input is our output. Yuri's achievement made him a worldwide celebrity. And to promote the Soviet achievement, he conducted a world tour, which included visits to Czechoslovakia, Bulgaria, Finland, Iceland, Cuba, Brazil... Canada and Hungary. In 1961, in July 1961, 
he visited the UK. Um, he went to London and Manchester, and he also took part in a questions and answers session for the BBC. Here is a short excerpt from it. We have a saying here when you're nervous about something that you have butterflies in the stomach or butterflies in the tummy. <laughs> Can you really honestly say that you did not have any butterflies in the tummy before you started? Yes, I can assure you there were no butterflies, moths, or anything else in my stomach. Your uh, American astronaut colleague spent an unfortunate three or four hours in his spaceship before he started off. Did you have a comparable uh, wait before the takeoff? Will you repeat the latter part of the question, please? Did you have a comparable wait sitting in the spacecraft mm -hmm. waiting for the thing to take off? Uh, you see, we were not in the same position, Shepard in the Mercury spaceship and myself in ours. Несколько часов пребывания моего пребывания there was no need for me to spend several hours in the spaceship Vostok before the takeoff. Это был довольно-таки короткий промежуток времени, в течение которого я, по-моему, вел себя совершенно спокойно, не нервничал. Да что наши ученые могут подтвердить по объективным данным, которые у них получены? The brief period of time I did spend in the spaceship before the actual takeoff, I think I spent in a quite normal condition, and I think the scientists uh, who were in charge of the flight will confirm this by producing the records, the objective records they have of my pulse count and so on. Тем более, что повода такого, чтобы волноваться и нервничать, такого повода в это время совершенно не было, как и в течение всего космического полета. And I don't think there were any grounds for me to be seriously anxious either at that period or at any time throughout the flight. Um, you were saying a moment ago, objective records, scientists' objective records, makes me think of something. Uh, when are we going to see the color film? which everybody here is most anxiously waiting to see. Видите ли, мне трудно сказать, когда вы увидите этот фильм так, так как это зависит не от меня. Well, it's difficult for me to give you an exact time because it's not really, it doesn't really depend on me. Я могу сказать лишь то, что этот фильм у нас в Советском Союзе уже вышел на экраны и демонстрируется в наших кинотеатрах. With great success, I should add. Yes, so this film is now being shown in the Soviet Union. It is? Yes. Would, would, will you, when you get back home, say, please, we'd like to see it here as quickly as possible? <laughs> yes, I'll be sure to do so. If we could talk just for a moment about the spacecraft itself. Was the cabin on view at the Toshino Air Show, the 
one up there on the wall just behind you. Was that the actual Vostok? Кабину в тушен на авиационном параде не показывали, показывали весь комплекс космического корабля. The capsule as such was not shown, but the whole spaceship was shown at Tushino. Я затрудняюсь, был ли этот, сказать, тот самый был ли, или другой, другая модель этого космического корабля, но это тоже. As to the other part of your question, I can't say exactly whether it was the same spaceship or an exact replica. Could you give us some idea what it's like being in this spaceship, how much room you have in it? Просторно находиться в таком космическом корабле, как примерно вы себя чувствовали? Много было места для вас? Да, в кабине космического корабля очень просторно, гораздо просторнее, чем находиться в кабине самолета. Yes, it was quite roomy. In fact, it was far roomier than in the cabin of a jet plane. Um, while we're talking about the the, the ship in flight. Um, there's one small mystery which I think possibly you may be able to clear up for us, but perhaps not, but I'd like to try. On the day when you were making the flight, on the day when Moscow Radio was describing you making the flight, there appeared in our uh, communist newspaper, The Daily Worker, the report that the flight had been made successfully and that the flyer had returned to the Earth. And that report was dated from Moscow the day before. I'm sorry to put this at such length, but this created the impression, of course, that another flight had taken place and you had flown second, and nobody has ever dispelled this yet. Will you do it now? Могу совершенно компетентно вам заявить, что Очевидно, корреспонденту этой газеты было известно несколько больше, чем тем людям, которые занимаются в нашей стране непосредственно космическими полетами. Now, I can assure you quite authoritatively that evidently the correspondent of that paper felt he was better informed than the actual people who are in charge of this work in the Soviet Union. May I have a question? Такого космического полета не было еще ни у нас в Советском Союзе, не делали такой космический полет и другие государства. No previous flight of this kind had in fact taken place either in the Soviet Union or in any other country. Thank you. Полет, который был совершен 12 апреля, был первым полетом в Советском Союзе, и, собственно, это был первый полет с человеком на борту космического корабля в истории всего человечества. I did, yeah, and I have to say, actually, randomly, the translator sounded a little bit like our our good friend, Mr. Vobes, even though I'm sure it, it, it probably wasn't him. Um, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, and uh, Mr. Gagarin sounds like uh, he has a great sense of humour about some of the questions he was asked as well. He, yeah, very tongue-in-cheek about what he wanted to say, there, especially when he yeah. was taking the mickey out of that, uh, the... Uh, a uh, communist newspaper. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> what a great thing to say. <laughs> there is a, a, another little bit of controversy that the newspapers brought up at the time, because 
how the world record or the record to say that you've made the the trip you had to stay in the vehicle from when it came in at re-entry and hit the ground um, at the time they didn't know how the capsule was going to respond to hitting the ground so um, he bailed out by a parachute um, because if it had done it there and then told the world that they'd done that they may not have given them the record and the Americans may have beaten them because it was only a few months later that um, Alan Shepard um, did an orbital flight for the Americans right yeah so to preserve the uh, yeah preserve the record which is fair enough I mean afterwards I mean it, it was very it was a good 20 odd years down the line before it actually came out that um, he actually jumped out um, by parachute and landed on the ground everybody in the space community said as far as we're concerned he made it so yeah of course he did he orbited the earth and made it into space so whether he bails it out when he comes back down or not, just to keep himself alive is a difference. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing yeah, wrong with that. In you my you don't know how it's going, what's going to happen. I mean, he did, a, as I said earlier, a journey into the unknown. So you, you don't know what to expect. No, not at all. This is the Garbage Pod, where your input is our output. Hi, this is Richard Garriott. In 2008, I spent most of the year in Star City outside of Moscow in Russia, training for my October spaceflight. But while I was there, I had the very unique opportunity to bring Yuri's Night back to Mother Russia, where they celebrate the same day as Cosmonautics Day, the day Yuri Gagarin flew into space, which was the first day humanity entered space. So for all of you around the globe celebrating Yuri's Night tonight, from Mother Russia, Tri Chitiri, Ura! Hurrah! Hurrah! Hi, I'm LeVar Burton. Yuri's Night is a special celebration of the remarkable achievement of man's space flight. Do yourself a favor, go to www.yurisnight.net and find a party near you. Join with like-minded people and celebrate this very remarkable accomplishment and let's set our sights on keeping this planet as safe and healthy as it possibly can be. Piece. Well, that was Richard Garriott and LeVar Burton. Well, you might know LeVar Burton. Uh, he's probably best known as Geordie LaForge from um, Star Trek The Next Generation. I had a feeling that's who it was. <laughs> and Richard Garriott may be not so well known to you. Um, how can I describe uh, Richard Garriott? He's a space explorer, award-winning computer game developer, an entrepreneur, a philanthropist... Um, an adventure traveller. <laughs> He's done quite a lot. Um, he sounds like Ace Rimmer. <laughs> <laughs> he made his fortune as a, a video game developer, mm-hmm. and uh, but his passion was space. He inherited this from his father, Owen Garriott, a former NASA astronaut, who I have very big interest in because his first space flight was on board Skylab which was launched in the summer of 1973, the summer I was born. Right. And uh, he set a new world record for a duration in space of approximately 60 days, more than double the previous record. That's Uh, a long time in space, isn't it? It is. It's not so much now. Oh, wow. But back then, 60 days was a hell of a long time. Oh, yeah. Very much so. As Richard mentioned in the clip, in October 2008... Richard realised his lifelong dream to follow his father's footsteps and travelled into space when he was launched aboard the Russian Soyuz TMA-13 spacecraft to the International Space Station 
and became the sixth private citizen to fly into Earth's orbit. By doing so, Richard also became the first second-generation American in space. Wow. So, like father, like son, they both lived on a space station. Yeah, that's following your dreams right there, isn't it? Fair play to him. But when you've got millions like he's got... (laughs) Yeah, he's put them to good use. Um, since he's since he came back to Earth, he um, he has invested in various space-related ventures such as the Zero G Corporation, the X Prize, the Space Hab. Uh, Richard is currently the chairman of Space Adventures Limited, the world's premier private space exploration company. Oh wow! Uh, during his training and mission to the ISS, Richard documented his experiences and released them as a motion picture called Richard Garriott, A Man on a Mission, which is well worth watching if you can get hold of it. I thought it was going to be um, a little bit cheesy, like Garriott's a fire or something. But <laughs> that, man on a mission. <laughs> man on a mission is fine. <laughs> Whilst we're on the subject of cinema, imagine this. What if you got back home and there was nobody there? In 1975, the first Russian cosmonaut on the moon is unable to make his way back and is declared missing in space. However, through ghostly radio messages, he claims to have come back to Earth and found it empty. Not a living soul there. Really? That, that's not true. That's that's fiction. Purely fiction. Uh, the Russians have never been to the moon. This is a plot of a truly unique film called The Cosmonaut. That's going to be released later this year. And what makes... Um, The Riot Cinema Collective film Unique is that it's completely financed by crowdfunding and will premiere the same day on DVD, Blu-ray, online for free and in cinemas. So you can watch it in whatever format you want. That's fantastic. Not only that, the Cosmonaut uses a license that extends the concept of copyright and allows, under certain conditions, the film to be distributed freely, copied modified and remixed generating new works based on the original material and this will create endless new business opportunities and broadens the mass distribution wow that's yeah never been done before no and i think why would they decide to do that then um is it to do with you say crowdfunding does that mean it's obviously a collaboration of people that have basically before the film was released or will be released i think it's like three three or four years ago that it went out on the internet do you want to be part of a film do you want to make a film or help make this film and right. um, you could put in as much as you want it's it's quite a low budget but it's a very good uh, very good film and some of these lower budget films are uh, a lot better than these high budget uh, blockbuster type things well, you've only got to look at Star Wars. I mean, when that came out, that was one of the lowest budget films ever made. But because of their creative prowess, if you like, they they made the best that they could do with the money that they had. Yeah. And that's what these people have done. I think it's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's going to annoy Hollywood a little bit because they tried to make mega bucks whatever they do. And these people saying, right, you can do what you want with it. <laughs> I suppose because it's they're almost saying, well, you you made it happen, so you can do with it what you like. Yeah, yeah. So I'm definitely interested in seeing that when it comes. Out. I'm not too sure when the actual release date is on it yet. The only thing is with it though, um, you have to actually approach your cinema to get them to screen it, your local cinema. But as it's not going to cost them anything to screen it, they can make a bit of money out of that. 
Yeah, they could do. <laughs> well, the best bet is to find someone who's got a projector and uh, see if you can get away with streaming it through the projector. Yeah. There's That's countless, countless things you can do with that. Countless. Yeah. <laughs> Great idea. Yeah, right. very much so. I look forward to that as well, and I'll make sure something we have to watch. Yeah, I'll, I'll keep an eye out. I'll also put links to it on the show notes as well. Everything that's pretty much been mentioned in the show, uh, if I forget to say I'll put it in the show notes, just have a look at the show notes. There'll be something there about it. You're listening to The Garbage Pod. Where your input is our output. I think it's time we had some more music. Astronaut Ron McNair was a saxophonist. And before STS-51L... He worked with composer Jean-Michel Jarre on a piece of music called The Last Rendezvous. It was intended that he would duet with Jean-Michel on board the Space Shuttle Challenger, making it the first piece of music to be played in space. During a musical spectacular that Jean-Michel Jarre was putting on for the people of Houston to mark the 150th anniversary of the city, and the 25th anniversary of Johnson Space Center. However, 51L ended in tragedy after the two solid rocket boosters broke apart after 73 seconds into its flight, leading to the deaths of its entire crew. Subsequently, Jean-Michel Jarre renamed Last Rendezvous to Ron's piece in honor of his friend. Whilst we listen to this wonderful piece of music, let's take a moment to remember the members of the space community who have lost their lives whilst trying to reach the final frontier. I would like to dedicate this next song to my friend, the astronaut Ron McNair. We remember Ronald McNair, who said that he learned perseverance in the cotton fields of South Carolina. His dream was to live aboard the space station, performing experiments and playing his saxophone in the weightlessness of space. Oran, we will miss your saxophone and we will build your space station.
Well, that was uh, Jean-Michel Jarre with Ron's piece, which is a, a truly moving piece of uh, music. It was really moving to see it at the, at the concert as well because the saxophone was played by one of the greatest uh, saxophonists in, in, in modern jazz, a guy called Kirk Whelan, and they had him hoisted uh, above Houston skyline and projected onto the buildings of uh, of the, the skyline. They had pictures of all the, the crew that lost their lives in the Challenger disaster. Seems like a very fitting tribute. That would have been amazing, just amazing, to have somebody playing the um, saxophone from the uh, space shuttle whilst the concert was in progress. That would have been brilliant. Yeah. Um, I nearly said space station. I'm so used to... <laughs> people doing things live from the ISS but as you heard at the beginning of that that piece um, they played a clip of um, Ronald Reagan with his tribute to Ron McNair and you know we will build your space station yeah and they certainly did yeah didn't they just you're listening to the garbage pod right uh, before we wrap up this special episode of the garbage pod I have one more message to play, if I may. Of course. The reason I have left this message till last is that I think that it captures the true essence of what Yuri's Night is all about. My name is Kate Arkless Gray, but many people know me as Space Kate. Uh, For the last few years I have become completely obsessed with space and it all started when I met a guy from NASA, a chap called Dr Chris McKay, who turns out to be one of the world's leading astrobiologists. He's an absolutely fascinating guy. When I met him, I'd never met anybody from NASA and I didn't ever dream that I would because NASA is like Father Christmas. You know that it exists, but you're never going to meet it. It was so kind of far away and untouchable. And that's why I think events like Yuri's Night are so important, because it means that people like me who are interested, who would dream of space if it was a bit more reachable, have a way of connecting with other like-minded people and, and perhaps even meeting some scientists, some astronauts, and some rocket scientists, mission controllers, or just other people who love space. And that's brilliant. So after I met Chris McKay at a theoretical physics conference in Canada, as you do, he invited me down to the Mojave Desert where they were doing some work on Mars analogues and it was so exciting and, you know, exploring and doing science and I loved it. And uh, I was due to come home but everybody was talking about this thing called Yuri's Night and I didn't know what it was. But apparently, at NASA Ames, over in California, they were going to have a huge event, two-day event, one day all about education, and one day more for the adults and more of a party. It sounded too good to miss, frankly, so I actually changed my flight home to London, and I stayed an extra week so that I could go to Yuri's Night. And it was incredible. They turned this NASA base into an exhibition hall, an education space. They turned one of the aircraft hangars into almost like a a dance hall, you know, with DJs and lights and strobes and lasers. They had a huge music stage. They had an 
aerobatics show. They had the Sophia plane there. It was amazing. Um, and the kids were coming along and building their little paper rockets, doing little air rockets and shooting them off across the tarmac. And you could have a chance at driving a little rover that they use. Uh, they've been testing out in the desert and you could get your little rover driving certificate. It was great. And they had some amazing speakers there. You know, I learned all about Elcross. I actually heard from the lady who founded Yuri's Night, who was presented with a, an award there. And it was such a nice atmosphere. People from all different walks of life, young people, older people, and, and the children were having so much fun with the education stuff, and the adults are having so much fun dancing on a NASA base. Who does that? That's great. The next two Yuri's Nights that I've attended have been completely different, but wonderful in their own ways. The second one I went to, I was actually invited to speak and I, I told people about my crazy space adventure and my dream of getting to space. And uh, I was up there with a bunch of comedians and also space scientists. So it was a really nice mix of sort of entertainment and, and learning. And of course it was in a bar, so we had a bit of fun and it, it was a lovely, lovely event. And the third one I attended was at the British Interplanetary Society, where they showed a film um, called First Orbit, which had been created to kind of echo Yuri's orbit around the Earth. And I was very excited because Paolo Nespoli, the Italian astronaut, was the chap who filmed most of it from the space station, and he was the first astronaut I ever met. I get completely overexcited and childish about space. And you know what? I don't care, because it is exciting. I don't want to be a grown-up and be like, well, yes, there's some very complicated physics that means that this rocket can go to space. Obviously, the physics is amazing too, but if you watch a rocket launch, if you feel a rocket launch, you see it, the brightness, the sound, that low rumble that shakes all of your bones, space is exciting. It's exciting, look at that, it's amazing! And I think that's a really important thing. And that's what I try and share with people, to make people realise that space is real. That's one of the hardest things about space. It's such a thing that you dream of as a child and then people are like, well, you're never going to go to space, don't dream that anymore, grow up. Well, why? Why shouldn't you dream that? And that's why I think that Yuri's Night is so important. We celebrate not only the anniversary of the first person going into space, but also 20 years later of the shuttle's first launch. And what a nice way to get the public involved, get people involved to come and celebrate something which is genuinely exciting. And it doesn't matter if you don't understand all of the physics and the science behind it. It's cool, and maybe that's enough. And if you come in and you think that's really exciting and really interesting, maybe you'll go and learn a bit more about the science of it. If you meet people who are doing this work, maybe you'll think that, oh, I could do that, or my children could do that. So come along to an event, it's so much fun. You'll meet like-minded people and you'll find it's absolutely okay to be ridiculously excited about space. Do you see what I mean? Definitely. Yeah. She has got Jane. so much passion about space, it is not You real. can always feel the excitement in what she's saying. Yeah, very much. Yeah, uh, great speaker. And that is what she does. She goes around the world promoting space. Excellent. An amazing woman, really is. Why not attend a Yui's night near you? To find out where your nearest event is, visit 
www.yurisnight.net. If you can't make it to an event, spacevidcast.com will be streaming coverage of Yuri's Night LA from the California Science Center and they will begin broadcasting at 2.30am UTC. But if you can't uh, actually stay up to uh, watch that, I'm sure the coverage will be archived on their website later. Before we go, I'd like to thank a few people. Firstly, as always, Adrian John. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. And Chris, Blair and Franklin from NASA Edge. Tim Bailey from Yuri's Night, who gave me permission to use some of these sound bites. Rona Monroe from the uh, Royal Shakespeare Company. Alan Taylor Shearer. And a special thanks to Kate Arkless Gray for all her help and good luck with the new job. Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of The Garbage Pod. Visit www.thegarbagepod.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode of The Garbage Pod or TGP Extra. Just look for The Garbage Pod show section in the menu. While you're on the website, why not have a nose about? You can find a little bit more about me and the rest of the crew and find out what's going on in the podosphere by reading the blog and much, much more. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the website, which include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to the show, you could do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and now via YouTube. If you look on the right-hand side of the show's page, the blog, or even the video vault, You'll see a little button there that says Donate. If you like what we do and you feel that you could give us a little something just to help us out a bit, we'd be most appreciative. And don't forget, spread the word. Well, that just leaves us to say... It's good night from me and it's good night from him. Thanks for listening and I'll speak to you again soon. Take care. The Garbage Pod is a Spamhead production. Hey,